Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to become a startup entrepreneur while you're still in school, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a co-founder and chief product officer at Stride Tech, a medical device startup that he started building as an undergrad at the University of Colorado Boulder back in 2019. But before I introduce you to Timothy Visos Elin, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that is packed with career advice, insights, and inspiration for college students and young professionals. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my espresso-loving entrepreneurs, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Timothy Visos Eli, a co-founder and chief product officer at Stride Tech. Stride Tech produces an embedded smart walker attachment that actually clamps onto the handlebars of a walker and provides real-time kinesthetic, also known as haptic feedback, to the user when the walker isn't being used properly. Timothy is going to explain all of this. During his time as an undergrad, Timothy participated in or led close to 30 projects across various classes, internships, and clubs. Timothy, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated out there in Boulder and ready to go? Yes, I, well, I'm not caffeinated, but I am ready to go. Thank you so much for having me. What, what, you just let that slide? You're not caffeinated? <laughs> are you not, you are not a Java junkie? Not, well, I love coffee, actually. I really like it. It just doesn't agree well with me. I get too anxious. So I prefer teas and low caffeinated drinks. Yeah. You know what? I'm just giving you shit. It is, it is okay. I used to be sensitive to coffee and I think it's because I drink so much of it. So I've had to cut back. I drink probably one really strong cup of coffee. And then I might make a second one and kind of sip it. But when you allow yourself a coffee, Timothy, what kind do you like? I like a good cold brew. Yeah. Yeah. Something with a good amount of like cream in it. (laughs) Okay. I don't need a lot of sugar, but cream is important. I get it. I get it. I have a great non-dairy creamer that is, I guess, marketed by a former world-class surfer, Laird Hamilton. It's really, really good. Yeah. So it's all good. It's fine that you are not a coffee drinker. And before we get into what you are doing now as co-founder and chief product officer, also known as a CPO, I had never actually heard those initials before, at Stride Tech. Why don't we kick things off, Timothy, by you laying out for us what Stride Tech does. I I did a probably half-assed job of explaining it. What is Stride Tech and what gap is it filling in the marketplace today? Happy to do so. And you did a perfectly fine job explaining it, actually. You did a great job. The technology itself does require a little bit of backstory explaining because it isn't an area where I really had a lot of knowledge of early in college. But at some point, my sophomore year, actually, my grandma started to struggle with her mobility and she started to 
use a walker after having a stroke. And so this kind of brought me into the world of mobility devices. And I was in engineering school at the time. I was always thinking of like, what are the solutions and, and things like that. The problem that my grandma kept facing and that my, my family struggled with throughout her mobility decline was that she was falling. And this was a huge concern for her and us. And uh, one of the main causes for her falling was she wasn't using her walker correctly. And this is something that a lot of people don't even realize. You know, we got my grandma a walker and we thought this would be a good thing, right? It'll be there to support her. It'll be there to keep her mobile. But when not used properly, walkers can actually cause more harm than good. It's really, really critical to train and utilize your walker properly. So that's kind of the inspiration for developing the technology that ended up becoming Stride Tech Medical. So the technology itself, he described it really well, actually goes onto the side of a walker, can go on any walker, and it can detect when someone is not using their walker in a safe way. And then it will immediately alert to that through that haptic or vibration feedback to the handle. So it's just kind of like your phone buzzing, right? It's just a quick, easy, friendly reminder to stand upright, step into the walker frame, be in a safe walker position. On top of that, our device does collect very valuable information on how well someone is using their walker, their activity levels, and things like this that we will be providing to healthcare professionals, family members, just to give that peace of mind. Personally, I know that knowing that my grandma is up for the day using her walker, how active she is, like this is all just peace of mind knowing that she's doing okay. That's kind of the inspiration behind Stride Tech, and we're developing that technology. We launched it in 2019, like you said, in school. It's been about three years since. One of the things that really surprised me as I was preparing for our interview, Timothy, was some of the data points that you shared with me in one of the documents that you sent. And it's the fact that the Walker technology, if we even want to call it that, mm -hmm. but an actual design of the typical Walker has not changed in like 50 years. Yeah. I mean, here we are in the worlds of like, okay, it's been a long time since we sent a man to the moon, but hey, we've got our smartphones, we've got AI, we've got big data, and yet the Walker has not changed. Why is that? Yeah, within the medical device industry, it's really challenging. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of regulations and a lot of really big players who are good at bending metal and putting wheels on it, but not as good at building technology. And there has been, you know, some shifts and developments in mobility devices, but actually worked for a project in undergrad for Medline. Medline's a big walker manufacturer, but they actually do everything from like bedpans to band-aids. Huge, huge company. We actually redesigned a walker for them. And we call it the reciprocating rollator. It can, it's kind of like an elliptical and a walker combined so each side can move independently from each other. We presented this idea to the Medline R&D team, the executive team was there. It was super cool. They flew us out to Chicago. We were like, how long would something like this take to implement? And they're like, five to 10 years. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. It makes sense why there isn't a lot of innovation when you have to jump through so many hurdles. It takes so long to develop this technology, even incrementally. Like If they wanted to do something simple, it would still take a really long time. And so developing this technology, and that's a big reason why actually we went with a walker attachment was because we could have built out a really cool high-tech walker, but by making it an attachment, one, you don't have to buy a new walker now. You can just use the one you have. And two, it also helps with the regulation side of things because we're not building a class one medical device, which is what a walker is. So smart. So when will Stride Tech be in stores? When can people get it? We're very, very close. We're, we're very excited about the progress that we've made over the last three years developing the technology. And there has been a lot of testing and validation to go into developing such a technology. No one's ever done this before. No one has ever quantified walker use, put actual data to it. There was a lot of research that went into actually just figuring out what does walker use look like and how to quantify it. But we are nearing the end. So we are currently fundraising on a platform called Start Engines. This is an equity crowdfunding platform where 
is essentially anyone can invest and purchase equity in Stripe Tech Medical. We're using this money and we plan to build out our first 100 units. And that's going to be coming in the next quarter or so. We're going to have 100 units. We're very, very excited. We finally developed technology to a point where we have the manufacturing, we have the supply chain. We're going to have 100 units very soon. So I'm super excited to be able to do that. And we have a few partners who are interested in starting to do large-scale testing and pilots with. We're also going to start offering it for sale around that time. So... Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And actually, in the spirit of full disclosure, I don't even know if you know this, Timothy. I am a small, small investor in Stride Tech and actually went on to Start Engine because your CEO, George Duer, is a friend and I wanted to support him and support you. And I believe in your mission. I had no idea when you would actually take it to market. It's all good. Very close. Yeah. We should also probably let our listeners know, in case they haven't already figured this out, that when you graduated from CU Boulder, and I am saying it correctly because Timothy already corrected me, it's not UC Boulder, it's CU Boulder. When he graduated in 2019, his major was something called engineering plus with an emphasis on mechanical engineering and a concentration in engineering management. Now, until now, I had never heard of engineering plus, Timothy. Hmm. What is it? And is this something to your knowledge that is on other campuses or is this something somewhat unique to CU Boulder? Engineering plus is kind of a more broad engineering degree. I originally actually started in mechanical engineering and it's such a new degree that they didn't have it when I started college. It was like something that started my sophomore year and I switched into it because it was really appealing to me. A typical mechanical engineering degree would be you take everything to the mechanical engineering department and you can you might have a few electives that you can go elsewhere. But engineering plus kind of opens up everything. So I was able to take my classes through any departments and it allowed me to really explore and Kind of have a more generalist degree, which was kind of my goal. Some people, they're okay with just focusing on mechanical engineering, but I wanted to do a whole bunch of different things. So that's what Engineering Plus is. It's just a very broad degree, very project-based focus, which I really liked as well, very hands-on. And I believe that there actually probably is programs like this in other universities. I don't know what they'd be called. Engineering Plus is what CU calls it, but many other universities, I've talked to other people who go to different universities in Colorado and KU and stuff like that. I grew up in Kansas, so I have a lot of friends there. And yeah, they have like various degrees that are just more general in the engineering world. Got it. And what is engineering management? Engineering management was basically a way for me to build my business experience through school and actually develop some of the business side of Stride Tech Medical, utilizing my credits. So engineering management was just kind of like, Again, fairly broad. A lot of people used it to become like project managers for engineering companies. So they would have to deal with like kind of managing a team of engineers, come up with the milestones, the budget, making sure to balance. Usually in the case where you're managing a team of engineers, a client that wants you to build something for them, manage their expectation, manage their needs with what you can actually do and that kind of thing. That's a typical engineering manager. But the degree allowed me to basically take any management level course. So I went to the business school and I took marketing classes and I took business plan writing classes and I used and I talked to the professors and talked to them about Stride Tech Medical and what we're doing. And I was like, can I just use my company for your class and and we can I can get credit for building my business? And they're like, yeah, I mean, as long as you meet the course requirements. And it was a fantastic trade-off of being able to yeah, utilize my degree to start a business. Beautiful. Yeah. And as you're describing this, Timothy, it sounds to me like the entrepreneurial version of having been enrolled in a co-op. Mm-hmm. So rather than studying and then going to work for an established corporation, you were studying and building your startup. So really getting dirt under your fingernails. Yeah, absolutely. I think that being an undergrad or being in college is a great way to 
utilize your degree to start something new and really develop a company. If that's what you're interested in, then there are a lot of ways you can do that. Like what? I can already touch on it a little bit with the classwork and focusing on classes that allow you to bring your own project to them, which is what I did and allow you to develop different aspects of your business that you want to develop through that coursework. And then the other thing is, yeah, talking to your professors who are experts, who are very, very experienced in specific areas and talking to them about your business, even if it's just going to office hours. I think I even had a class that was a business plan writing class where you were allowed to pitch your business to write a a plan for it. But the class has to pick the ones that you write your plan for. It was like your top six. And so everyone gets to pitch business. I pitched mine and the class didn't pick it. (laughs) So I wasn't able to work on stride tech through the class, which I thought was kind of funny, but I still went to office hours and I talked to a professor and was like, I'm going to be working on the coursework in parallel with my company stride tech. And he was like, cool. Yeah. Come into office hours and I'll give you feedback and advice on your business plan, even though I'll be grading you on this other one. Fantastic. You know, I read through your LinkedIn profile, Timothy, and in it, you talk about the fact that over the four years that you were at CU, you participated in or led close to 30 projects and did so in classes, in internships and clubs. What did that look like? You just alluded to one that was in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an example of something outside of Stride Tech, outside of that particular class where Stride Tech wasn't selected? Yeah. Are you trying to get me to stop talking about Stride Tech? Is that what you're doing? Absolutely (laughs) not. We are going to be talking about Stride Tech the rest of the interview. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. It's it's okay. It can be refreshing sometimes to talk about other things. Yeah, I did a lot of clubs and I did a few internships. Like on the extracurricular side, I was a part of a club called Design for America. And that one was a huge one. It's basically what I really liked about it is it is a part of a larger organization. So Design for America, they have, I believe at the time it was like 36, but they're growing. So they probably have closer to 40 universities across the nation who all have Design for America studios. So it is very likely that if you're a listener, your university might have Design for America club. I would highly recommend looking it up because what they do is it's basically a student-led design studio that takes on local community-based problems that are design-oriented, that are usually have some sort of positive social impact. And then they develop and build a team of students to tackle that problem. And it could be... It's not just engineering-related. And that's why I really liked it. It could be artistic. It could be more civil-based or even political or anything. It could be any type of social problem that you want to tackle. And then you just build a team around it and tackle it. Most of the projects I worked on were very engineering focus, but we had people developing art installations. We would have a local museum or they want to develop some sort of children-friendly exhibit or something like that. And then we just would build a design team around it and and do a project for a semester where we focused on solving that problem. That was kind of one way that I got a lot of projects under my belt. And I also got a lot of management experience in that. It, It kind of helped with... I was managing a team of people. And then I was one of the founding members of Design for America at the time. So I was actually kind of recruiting students, managing the finances and getting the projects established. So you're reaching out to people in the community, businesses, organizations, just cold calling them up and saying, Hey, we're a student-led design team. We want to solve your problems. Let's talk. And it kind of gave me a little bit of this entrepreneurial mindset, something that's really, really important in starting a business. And so that's kind of the start, the fostering of my entrepreneurial mindedness that led to Straight Debt. One of the internships that you had, I guess it was your junior year, was with iFlight, mm-hmm. which was an early stage startup working on augmented and virtual reality solutions for people with disabilities. I believe you were the third member of the team. How did you break into that team and become a part of this program? Yeah. 
if you're a student and you'd like to work for a startup, and there's a lot of opportunities out there, but it's kind of hard. Not hard in that it's fairly easy if you know how to do it. But the hard part from a founder perspective is that you just don't have the bandwidth. You don't have like an HR team to go recruit hundreds of people. You often rely on like your network and people to tell you about, oh, this person is interested in working for a startup, blah, blah, blah. You usually only have like two or three applicants if you do put out a job description. So it's kind of different. What's nice though is that if you do get into that community, it is a tight-knit community. You can get those introductions. And there are even programs in universities to often help facilitate that. You'll be on a list of maybe five people. So you have a high likelihood of actually getting the job, which is really nice. And you have way more responsibilities with your job because you're not just like a small intern in a very large company. You're a big part of this company and you have a lot of responsibility. It's a great internship opportunity if you can find it. So what I did was we had a few programs. One was Startup Summer. It was like basically a program that would link startups with summer interns and you would get to work for that startup for the summer. And then on top of that, they would pair all the interns into teams and then those teams would have to start companies and then pitch them at the end of summer just as like a practice run for starting a business in, in only three months. That was just a program through the university. And I'm sure that there's a lot of similar programs in other universities that you can take advantage of. Once you're kind of into that startup community, so that's how I met iFlight was like they were on the list of startups looking for summer interns. And I was applying to this startup summer program and I got linked up with them. But then I met so many people in the industry. So many like in Boulder, particularly, the startup community is very close. And so I got to meet a lot of other founders, a lot of other companies and just kind of get integrated into that community. One way that we've hired interns from schools and universities is we've participated in startup-focused career fairs. They were hosted by CU, but they're a little bit smaller. So they're often not marketed to the entire university. And you kind of got to take some digging, ask around. Maybe your university will have something. So we will do a career fair and we have a table and, and things like that. So we found a few internships that way. And then other than that, We've also utilized the universities. They use Handshake, which is like a university-based job board. And we will post there as well. And too many examples, but last one. I love it. Keep it coming. (laughs) Professors are also a great way, especially if you are taking a class by a professor that does some sort of entrepreneurial-focused thing or they're into entrepreneurship. I can't tell you how many professors I've had that have started companies or are doing research that they're hoping to start a company out of, or they're in the business side and they've done it on that side as well. So talk to them and just let them know, hey, like I would be interested in working for a startup. They will recommend... Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I get emails from professors and how many times I reach out to professors if I'm looking for something specific. Fantastic suggestions, Timothy. Thank you so much. What difference do you think all of those different hands-on experiences made in the way that you've been able to show up since graduation in mm-hmm. building Stride Tech? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say entrepreneurship and wanting to be a startup founder, your goal is kind of like to have experience that's a mile wide and an inch deep which is almost counter to what a lot of other places will have you do. They want you to focus and do like really, really experience one area. But my goal is a mile wide and inch deep because you never know what you're going to be doing as a startup founder. I have an engineering degree. I haven't really done engineering for 80% of the last three years. I've worn so many different hats and I'm just so glad that I got a little bit of experience in each one of these areas. I at least know the basics and I can build on that when it comes time for me to come up with a marketing strategy for an equity crowdfunding campaign, for example. That's not something that you would typically do in engineering, but luckily I was able to take a class that had some marketing background. So that was very helpful. And so, yeah, that's the goal there. Is just a mile wide and an inch deep. And even though you started off, here's an example, at iFlight, As a hardware engineer, you had to quickly pivot 
to become a design intern. What was that experience like having to change roles midstream? It was a little bit, well, for that specific change, it wasn't too bad. I got into engineering because I love design and I actually have more artistic background. I love to draw and things like that. So I was happy to make that change. But in that same light, you know, I was working for iFlight and yeah, they were, they brought me on and I was going to design these augmented reality headset glasses. And so I was designing them. Then about halfway through the internship, they came to me and said, we've pivoted the company. We're no longer going to be a hardware company. We're not developing these glasses anymore because Oculus came out with a new headset that had the technology for them to be able to develop an app to do the same thing. And so they're like, we're now just going to be a software company. They asked me like, do you want to continue this internship? What would you like to be doing? Which was really nice because when you're in a startup situation and there's only three of you, you, you can have this kind of like honest conversation about what you want to be doing and how you can help. And that was my main goal was like, this is a startup. I'm one of three people. I need to be pulling my weight and contributing and moving the needle for them. And they're even paying me as an intern, which I know is even rare for internships from big companies and they're a startup. So I was like, I need to like really pull my weight. So I was like, just tell me what you need me to do and I'll do what I can to contribute. So yeah, they just gave me all kinds of research topics. They would just send me things to research and I would like write a one page summary of this research with citations and I would send that to them. Or one thing was they'd have me sit in on a lot of meetings and take notes. But what I eventually started doing was I would sit in the meetings that were with uh, customers and doing interviews on them reviewing the product, testing the product out and things like that. Then they asked me based on that information that I'm getting from sitting in on those meetings to come up with a beta testing strategy. That was kind of my final deliverable as an intern for the company was I wrote up an entire beta testing strategy for their app. And so it just kind of is being honest with, you know, I want to contribute. Just tell me what I can do and I'll do my best, especially in a startup situation. It's a little challenging because oftentimes from the other side of it, you're not as used to having a bunch of interns or employees and having like a concrete task list for the day is often not typical. So you're just having to relay information in real time and have them do things for you. Yeah, it's hard to plan. (laughs) So before we get into, we're almost at the point where I'm going to ask you what you're doing as chief product officer at Stride Tech. But before we do that, I wanted to see if you would talk about if it was a contest or a competition, a case competition or something along those lines where you ended up winning a pretty significant chunk of money while you were an undergrad that helped you build Stride Tech in the early days. The competition was called New Venture Challenge, which is a business pitch competition. You have five minutes to pitch your company and then five minutes of open Q&A in front of a panel of judges. And it's a fairly large competition at CU. Over 400 companies apply and pitch. And this is open to anyone with a buff card. So it could be PhDs doing research and with multi-million dollar grants. And it could be even professors. It was... I had no idea we were going to win. It, it, it was almost just like a, we'll see what happens kind of thing. So because we're an undergrad team of engineers who have developed this technology, but I've developed like a business plan and like one semester class. And, and, you know, it, it just felt like, you know, we're just going to do it and see what happens. But I knew that practice was really, really important when pitching. And this is a pitch competition. And in that line, it's all about how you present yourself on stage. And so I did three pitches every week. I would arrange it with different professors, different people that were mentors of mine previous managers, anyone that would be willing to hear me pitch for five minutes, I would just pitch to them and then get their feedback and get their Q&A questions. And so it was just this repetition of practicing over and over again. And yeah, the competition was three stages and we ended up winning the whole thing. The prize was $100,000, which was really the only reason why we were able to start Stride Tech after graduating. So we all graduated in 2019. And then we launched the company with $100,000 after winning that competition. That is so incredible. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. So let us dig into 
what you do, Timothy, as the chief product officer at Stride Tech. What is a chief product officer and what do you do? Oh, that's a fun question because a chief product officer is kind of just a broad generic executive term. Most C-suite titles at this stage of startup are arbitrarily given because you're wearing so many hats that there's not really a job description that you would typically fall under. So a CPO in kind of a more general sense, or at least where I would see myself being down the road once we can hire people to take some of my hats off, would be in charge of product direction. So I'd be the main interface between our users, so the various stakeholders that are using our technology, talking to them, interviewing them, testing the technology with them, and then figuring out what's next. What is the next feature? What is the most important thing that we can develop next? What is even future product iteration ideas? So I'm just kind of like thinking about the direction I want to take the product. And then using that information from customer feedback and all of that to our CTO, Andrew, who is kind of in charge of actually building the technology, hiring out the engineering teams to build the technologies. And then it's just kind of this back and forth of assessing the market and the demand and the interests and the problems that our users are facing with the engineering and talking about what's feasible, how long will it take, how much money will it take and all of that. So that's kind of the product. It's kind of that product manager side of things that I was you know, originally doing in school. But in a startup sense, I'm also doing marketing strategy, business development, sales. I am not actually doing a lot of engineering work and doing a lot of the business side of things. Doing things like this where I'm talking to news reporters, trying to tell the story of the company, right? I was kind of the face of the company from the start. And so that's a big part of my role too, which is typically like a more CEO's role, but I'm more product side oriented. But at the same time, I'm still the face of the company. So I do this and I, I do anything that's kind of like, I got to get up there and talk about the yeah. story and my grandma <laughs> and all that fun stuff. So you've already built the product. You've already built this device, biofeedback device that attaches to a walker. And you've also gotten a U.S. patent. Is that right? Yeah. Now you've filed for an international patent. What difference will that make? It's more of a strategy standpoint. Not all startups need to do it, but in the medical device space, IP is really, really important. And any type of like deep tech space, IP is really, really important. It directly correlates with the value that our company has and it gives potential for acquisitions because a lot of the big medical device companies, like I mentioned earlier, can bend metal and put wheels on them, but they can't develop technology. So they're acquiring companies who have developed technology. And so oftentimes they're buying that IP portfolio, which IP is more than just a patent. It's also the trade secrets that we've developed, the research that we've done, all of that over the last three years goes into our IP. And it just makes you more appealing, right? So like, yeah, we can be protecting the US, but we can also expand into other countries. It opens up more opportunities. So yeah, that is why we've done an international patent application. Can you take us into a typical day, Timothy? And as you've already said, you are wearing a lot of hats from marketing to sales to biz dev to spokesperson. I'm sure you've Uh done your fair share of sweeping or God knows what else, like runs to uh, get lunch. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 What does a day look like for you now? Well, that's a tough one. I'll just walk you through yesterday. That'll be easiest, although it'll probably be different tomorrow. Yesterday, started out with our all-team meeting, which is just the, the four of us. And we all kind of discuss our weekly goals and what we're working on and give updates and ask for help if we need it and all that. And then I went right into my marketing strategy meeting where we discussed what we wanted to do for the week as far as social, email, and all of that, what content we needed to do. And that involved me filming. So one of the things we want to do yesterday was put out a video explaining how to install Strike Tech O onto Walker. So I spent a good amount of time and a good amount of takes 
recording myself and saw the device explaining how to do it and all that. Got that posted to social media. And then we moved to a strategy discussion around our pilots. So as I said earlier, we were developing our 100 units and we have a few partners who are interested in piloting the technology. So this means larger scale testing with real users. So their their communities like senior living communities and then the rehabilitation facilities inside of those senior living communities would be using our technology with the residents who live there and with the patients. We we ha- we're having these meetings. We're kind of discussing like what we can do for a pilot, what we can offer them, what are our responsibilities, what are their responsibilities? How do we formulate this agreement? that highlights exactly what we need to be doing. What are the responsibilities of each party? What are the goals? That was another big topic of discussion, right? We have so much data we can collect from different sensors and and all kinds of stakeholders. We can do surveys. What are the key things that we need to be measuring and reporting on and all of these things. So it was a very... It was like a kind of strategy discussion around that, like brainstorming. So the team was there and, and we were whiteboarding it out and just kind of writing and spitballing ideas. And we came up with kind of an outline of what we wanted to propose to these potential pilot partners that we're talking to right now, which was, you know, it's kind of an exciting discussion because you're like, oh, this is actually like these units are going to be in people's hands and we need to make sure that we're collecting the right data at the right time and we're reporting the right ways and that we're providing value to our partners and doing what they want. And so, yeah, just framing that whole strategy and also how we're going to approach them. You know, we're going to have a meeting, we'll have a presentation, what we want to say, all that stuff. What do we need to ask them? So that was like a good long brainstorming session. And I think that was just about it. I had to get out some of the social media stuff, but that's related to the video I made because I yeah. made the video, but then after the meeting, I had to get it out on all the social platforms. Oh, and I had a, a decent amount of Facebook comments that I had to respond to as well <laughs> throughout the day. Nice. Yeah, that was yesterday, which... <laughs> Yeah. So it's typical, so to speak. So talk to us about the unpleasant challenge of raising capital and getting investment. How much do you need now? We're doing this interview in the middle of June 2022. You mentioned this crowdfunding platform, Start Engine. What's the goal? How close are you to getting there? And what's the pressure like? Lots of pressure. Fundraising is the most challenging aspect probably of starting a company, especially in the space that we're in. Hardware is typically less funded because it's so challenging to develop hardware and costs a lot more money. Uh, so it's a higher risk investment typically. And the other part of it is I got I to gotta call people and ask them for money, which is a, kind of a challenging thing to do. That's a big reason why we brought on our CEO, George, George Duer. He was an advisor through an accelerator program that we did called Boomtown Accelerators. And he is an experienced executive. He has raised money before. He's been around the block when it comes to that kind of stuff. And he, he's even been a part of some IPOs and all that. So we're like, we need someone with this level of experience because fundraising is just not something that you really have the experience to do while you're in undergrad. So we hired someone to help with that. And the pressure is real though. Like, I mean, it's still a big chunk of my day is trying to raise money. And that's kind of how you develop your whole business. It's like, what are the milestones we have to meet to raise money and how do we get there with the money that we have and all that stuff. So that's where the pressure comes in, right? You have. You don't have a lot of money in the bank and you have goals that you have to meet that are typically fairly expensive. And so you have to figure out how to get there. And oftentimes that means you got to raise X amount of money and you have this much runway, right? Like you're spending X amount of money per day. That's your burn rate. And you have this much money in the bank. So you have this much runway. And usually when you're in a startup, that can be anywhere from three months to a year. So if you don't raise money in the next three months or a year, you don't have any money left. So what does that mean for the company? And so yeah, that's the pressure side of it is you're constantly having to stay ahead of this like dead, like kind of this end of the road deadline for you. And every startup has to deal with that balance. And so yeah, that's the pressure. And 
we've actually done fairly well on the fundraising front for I think the industry and position that we're in. We were we raised a hundred thousand dollars from that pitch competition, and that was a great start. And then we brought on some angel investors. We got an investment from the university's venture fund and did a few accelerator programs that also invested in us. And then George came on and raised about three hundred k from just friends and family, and he's also invested himself. And now we're in a position where from all of that fundraising efforts and over the last three years, we've been able to do full-time development of the product. We've developed it. And now we're getting to a point where we need more money to be able to scale. We have the 100 units coming in. We have these pilots. And now we're like, we need to build more. We, we have demand. Now it's time to meet it. And we need money to build the units. And, and we, need, we need money to develop them. So that's what this fundraiser is for. It's for that next stage. It's, it's for getting out of R&D and into sales and growth. And so for that, we're going to need a million dollars. That's our next fundraising goal. And we've started with an equity crowdfunding platform. Start Engine, I already kind of mentioned that. So anyone can invest, buy equity in Stride Tech. The minimum investment is $250. What's great about this is you can get in early. You know, it is a high risk, high reward investment. I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, beat around the bush in that front. It's an exciting opportunity though to really help bring something to market that hasn't been done before that can really help people a lot. And with that money, yeah, we're going to build more units and continue to scale and grow the company. So, and we're at $162,000, I believe was the last number I saw on the ticket. Yeah. Very, very nice. So I'm curious, are you and your fellow co-founders actually drawing a salary right now? Or are you just kind of working yeah. for nothing? No, we do need a salary. We don't have the the family support that some people have to be able to kind of bootstrap a company. So yeah, we pay ourselves to be able to afford rent and kind of get by. That's that's the goal, right? We reinvest whatever we can. Like if we have actually, if we can lower our salaries, we will for the sake of putting that difference into the company. So we pay ourselves what we need, and George doesn't take it. And that's so- the big reason why we brought him on. So is the motivation at this point, Timothy, for you and your co-founders beyond the wanting to help those who are using walkers and reduce accidents and and other problems, is it just making a shitload of money? I think that from a standpoint of most entrepreneurs, that is typically like a big part of why they do it. I mean... It's kind of fun to play in this world where, yeah, we're going to be scraping by and we're going to be on that ramen noodle grind. And then if something happens where you blow up, you make it big, you get an acquisition. I mean, it's not just going to be like an overnight success. It could t- it usually takes five to 10 years of doing a grind, but yeah, you can stand to make a lot of money doing it. So yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's no shame in that. <laughs> So I'm sure some of our listeners feel that they've got a pretty good window into the tech startup world from watching shows like Silicon Valley. But have there been any, oh my God, I never thought of that kind of surprises that you've had? And if so, what were they? Oh my, this is actually a tough question. Oh my, I haven't thought of that. I get that kind of thing happen a lot, actually. We like to lean on a lot of advisors because we have, like I said, a mile wide inch deep experience. We need people who have very, very high levels of experience in specific areas that we talk to around some of the key aspects of our company. So we have an advisory board that's built out of people who have developed companies from startup to IPO, who have made multiple medical devices, class one, class to class three, people who have been CTOs, COOs, CEOs of medical device companies that have reached success. So we have kind of a panel and we meet with them on a fairly regular basis. And it just seems like every time we have one of those meetings, we walk out like, duh, like, yeah, like why, why haven't we been focusing on this this entire time? And yeah, those are super, super helpful to have that kind of panel of advisors that you can always have that like, gut check, like just make sure we're on the right path. I think I got really excited once about, okay, I don't know if I have a specific example. I had an example. I don't know if it will work for this. No worries at all. I'm actually going to jump to one of the last two questions right now, Timothy. And these are questions that I try to ask all of my guests. 
Could you share a time in your professional life thus far, including those internships and various activities and clubs that you were involved in in school in which you failed or the company failed or you thought you were going to fail? And what's most important here is how you persevered, how you kept moving forward, and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. I think I have a few I could touch on. The first one I'll give was during my first internship. I was an intern, which is one of the largest electronic distribution companies, a Fortune 100 company or something like that. And I was working at their headquarters on their engineering teams. And... I thought, you know, this was before I got an engineering class, before I got an entrepreneurship. And so I thought I was going to be a corporate engineer and make lots of money doing that. And the expect, I, I just didn't fit in, I guess, corporate kind of mindset. You know, okay, I, there's plenty of people. I have lots of friends who are in that environment and it's great for them and it's fitting for them. But just what they were asking of me, I wasn't quite sure if I was willing to put in that much work for a big corporation. And, you know, they're asking for, you know, 60 hours a week, working weekends, working long hours, but then not reporting that properly and kind of overworking the interns a lot. So that, that's typical in the engineering world, unfortunately. And I would be a little bit more straightforward. A lot of people were like, okay, whatever. I mean, I'm an intern. I'll be like, wait, so you want me to finish this project by Friday, but it's going to take me more than 40 hours to do that. So do I put in extra hours to finish the job? And they were like, no, don't, you can't put in extra hours, but you have to finish the project by Friday. And I, it was just back and forth where they wouldn't tell me I had to put in more hours, but I had to. So yeah, I just called them out on that throughout the internship. And then they didn't ask me back. And I kind of felt a little bit discouraged at the time because I was like, is this really what I'm signing myself up for going into engineering? And, and I wouldn't say that's a typical experience. I mean, I have people who have interned for companies, engineering companies that have been a fantastic experience, but, but that was just my start. And so it was like a lot of anxiety about like, did I really choose the right thing? Am I sure I want to do this? And then that's when I switched into engineering plus. And I think what really triggered that was I wasn't sure what I was going to do anymore. And so I just started talking to people in other degrees and asking them what they did and found some people who were doing engineering plus and that just kind of fit for me. So that was kind of the advice I would give, I guess. And many, many people I know, almost everyone I know in, in school has changed their degree. It's very common. And you know, you just got to ask around and too many people, they, all of their friends and all the people that they surround themselves with are from their degree. And so it is helpful to branch out and, and have even cross, like even across like, like I was in the engineering school, but go to like the arts and go to the English and try to just make friends everywhere. And so then if you have this realization that you're not doing the right thing, you might have a direction to go next. I love that. It's all about cross pollinating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also kudos to you for having the courage and the strength of character to like stand up to your supervisor and call bullshit. Yeah, we, we had a big presentation where we, I basically told them that this isn't going to work. The engineering would have come together. And they asked me to completely redo it. And I was like, this is because you sourced the wrong company. It was, I won't dive into it too much, but. So you caught a big error in mm -hmm. the work that the, I'm sure the full-time engineers had made in the design or whatever it was in this product. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, I would have hired you right there. I would have been like, this is the guy I want on my team. They were mad I didn't catch it earlier. Okay. Well, yeah. hey, it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, no, out. I mean, it, it was fine. And just the overall experience at Air Electronics was good. It just, it was a realization that this environment isn't for me and that doesn't mean it's not for someone else. And that is one of many things that you get out of doing internships and trying on these different jobs in different companies for size, because sometimes the work isn't a good fit. Sometimes the culture isn't a good yeah. fit. So final question, Timothy, if you could go back to see you and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Well, that's tough because, you know, like I said, going into it, I thought I had it all figured out. And then 
things change. Going back, I mean, I think I would have gone even more broad, being honest. There's this other degree that came in uh, after Engineering Plus even. It was a technology arts and media degree. And it was more creative focused. So you're doing more both like graphic design, product design, but also like electronic design, like making art installations out of technology, all kinds of really cool things, doing like fashion design, this type of stuff. And I wish I kind of would have done more in that area. I feel like I've really stayed on the tech side, even though I did broaden it, it's still tech and it's still engineering. And I've started to play around with some of my hobbies are in the fashion design creative space. That's how I started in engineering was I was an artist that was good at math. And so I was recommended by my high school counselor to go into engineering because those two things apparently are the, are the perfect combination of things to become an engineer. Yeah, I wish I would have kept on that creative side a little bit more. That's what I would do. I love that. And it's also something that you can continue to expand on. You can get certifications or you can watch some YouTube videos or whatever it takes to just kind of fill out that side or maybe decide at some point you want to get a grad degree. But yeah, I mean, your generation and even my generation, we are continuously going to be learning and expanding our skill set as long as we're working because the digital economy requires that. Absolutely. I'm really glad I waited to get a grad degree or a a graduate or a master's program just because yeah, you learn a lot when you get into the real world. And I would definitely recommend that if you're an undergrad and you're thinking about maybe getting a master's or something along those lines, just give it a, a year or two. and then you can get a master's and know, know a little bit more information about what you really want to do. I had a lot of friends who went right into getting a master's because they were too nervous to go into the real world. They're like, oh, I kind of like this school. Like I'm used to it. I, I, I'm structured and, and I'm not ready yet. So they went and got a master's just because of that. And that's not a good reason to get a master's. It should be to kind of expand and direct you towards something that you really want to do, you're really passionate about. Absolutely. You want to be running to something, not running away. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Timothy, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I wish you and your co-founders at Stride Tech lots and lots of luck. And not just because I'm an investor, but because I believe in your product and know that you have put blood, sweat and tears into making this come to life. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.